Well, welcome back. We are in John chapter 8 today, so if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them up to John chapter 8. It's a continuing study of this fourth gospel, and we're going to begin at verse 12 and read through the end of verse 29. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. So the Pharisee said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them, again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will, not, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. As we made our way through the Gospel of John, one thing has become abundantly clear, and that is that there is a deteriorating relationship between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, that relationship had never been particularly good, uh, but it was getting worse by the day. It had all started very early on in the gospel in John chapter 5 when Jesus had made his way to Jerusalem. And you'll recall that on that particular occasion, he had performed a healing. He healed a man who was lame at the pool of Bethesda. Those of you who have been to the Holy Land, that is now the pool of St. Anne. It's right outside of St. Anne's Church. You've actually been to the site. It's a remarkable place. But Jesus performed this miracle. Now, the fact that Jesus was performing miracles was not particularly a problem for the Jewish religious leaders. They would have encouraged that sort of thing. If there was somebody able to do that, they would have believed. And indeed, they do acknowledge the fact that Jesus was one who had come from God. They had acknowledged that in John chapter 3. The problem was not that Jesus was performing signs and wonders. The problem on this occasion is that Jesus had performed this sign on the what? Sabbath. 
on the Sabbath day. And of course, that was regarded as being in strict violation of the Jewish law. No work was to be done on that occasion. And the result of this was that the people began to come against him. The Jewish religious leaders began to oppose him. Uh, to such a degree, in fact, that Jesus actually left Jerusalem and withdrew to Galilee, where he spent the greater part of his ministry in the north, not in and around Jerusalem. Uh, the audience up there in Galilee was far more receptive to his message and to the things that he was doing than were the Jewish religious leaders who were for the most part concentrated in the south in Judea. Jesus had stayed away from this area except for the feasts. And on this particular occasion, you'll recall that his disciples and his family members had encouraged him to go back down to Jerusalem in part because his popularity in the north was beginning to wane as well. Jesus was still performing signs and wonders, but then he was expressing the fact that those signs and wonders were not meant to be ends in and of themselves. They were meant to point to the man and to his message. And when they began to listen closely to Jesus' message, they didn't particularly like it. For example, after Jesus had fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two small fish, he went on to say, don't work for this kind of bread or this kind of food that's only going to satisfy you for a little time. Instead, strive for the food that I alone can give you. You can't get it yourself. You are not self-sufficient. There's only one that can give you that which satisfies not just the body, but satisfies the soul for all eternity. And I'm that one. I am he. I am the true bread which comes down from heaven. Whoever feeds on me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst again. And we're told that many of his followers... The word there is disciples. Many of his disciples said this is a hard saying. And I pointed out when we were looking at that section of the gospel, they didn't mean hard in the sense this is hard for us to understand. We don't know what he's talking about. No, they knew very well what he was talking about. What they meant was that this is hard for us to accept. We don't like this. Don't tell me that I'm not self-sufficient, that I can't take care of myself. Don't tell me that you have what I need. And so we're told that many of them turned back and they followed him no more. Well, he'd been wildly successful up there, and that's why his disciples and his family members came to him and said, look, you're, you're, you're being a little hard here. You're, you're saying things that are offending people, and, and you're losing popularity. We've got an idea. We've got a plan for you. Go down there to Jerusalem and do the signs that you are doing up here. You know, feed a couple thousand people. Open the eyes of the blind. Cleanse some lepers. Raise somebody from the dead. Do something, and then your popularity will be back. And you'll recall that Jesus said on that occasion, no, your time is always right, but mine is not. You go on to the feast. And so they did. Now, Jesus did eventually go to the feast. This was the Feast of Booths. He eventually did go to the feast, but initially he went sort of incognito. He went quietly. And then in the midst of the feast, in the midst of all those ceremonies, the water being poured out on the altar, the lighting of the great lamps and so forth, Jesus began to teach. And as he began to teach, all of a sudden, those Jewish religious leaders who had opposed him so long before, perhaps a year or two before, suddenly remembered, ah, we know who this guy is. And that opposition was reignited. There were three failed attempts to get rid of Jesus. 
Uh, the first was an outright attempt to arrest him. He was becoming so popular with the crowds, many of the people said, isn't this the one that the Jewish religious leaders were opposing, and yet they don't seem to be doing anything to him? Could it be, could it be that, he, that they really have come to the conclusion that he is the Messiah? Well, of course they hadn't. And so they felt they needed to do something about that. They sent guards, temple guards in this instance, to arrest Jesus. I just love this part of the story. They go, and they're ready to arrest Jesus, and they just stop for a minute. Perhaps one of them, you can imagine, perhaps the sergeant who's in charge of all these non-coms suddenly stops and says, well, let's wait a minute. Let's, let's hear what he has to say for just a second, then we'll get him. And as they listened to him, they were awed by him. And were told that they returned to those who had sent them empty-handed. And the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body, said, well, where is he? We sent you to pick him up. Oh, nobody's ever spoken like this man. And the Jewish religious leaders were just frustrated. He's deceived you like he's deceived everybody else. That was the first attempt to get at Jesus. When that didn't work, they came up with a more, I almost hesitate to use the term, ingenious plan. Because it was really the height of wickedness. They decided to trapped Jesus, and they decided to use this woman, a woman who had apparently been caught in the act of adultery. And they brought her before Jesus, threw her down, and they said, the law states that anybody who's caught in the act of adultery deserves to be put to death. What do you say about this? Now, they thought that was a trick question because no matter how Jesus responded to it, he was going to be in trouble with somebody. On the one hand, if he said, Oh, no, haven't you heard a word I've said about grace, mercy, forgiveness, pardon, have compassion, all have sinned? Then he would have, the people would have said, the religious leaders would have said, ah, you see, what a hypocrite he is. He, he claims to be merciful and kind and so forth, but he also says he's come to uphold the law of Moses, that not one jot nor one tittle of the law shall pass until it is all fulfilled. And yet here he is claiming to be the fulfillment of the law and he's breaking it because the law of Moses is clear. And yet on the other hand, if he responded, well, the law is the law, not much we can do about that, then they would have said, ah, where's the grace? Where's the mercy? Where's the pardon? Where's the forgiveness? What a hypocrite he is. Now, we know how Jesus handled the situation. He handled the situation brilliantly. Um, Shakespeare has a wonderful expression. They ended up being hoist on their own petard. And that is exactly what happened here. They ended up being hoist on their own petard. They blew themselves up, as it were. They had a bomb, and they blew themselves up with their own bomb. So now there was a third attempt, and that's what we turn to today. There was a third attempt to get at Jesus. If at first you don't succeed, well, try, try again, and they kept at it. In this particular instance, they wanted to catch Jesus in a technicality. They say this, you are bearing witness about yourself, and your testimony is not true, verse 13. What was going on there? Well, according to the Jewish law, in order for a testimony to be considered valid in a court of law, there had to be two witnesses. In other words, you just couldn't have one witness. I think that's an important lesson for us today. We're living in a day in which a person can be accused of something, and there's not the assumption of innocence, although that's a long part of our legal tradition, that a person is presumed what? 
innocent until proven guilty, but we're living in this culture in which a person is automatically accused and they're presumed guilty until they can prove their innocence. Not the way to operate, to be perfectly honest with you. And the Jews did not operate that way. They absolutely believed that there had to be witnesses and somebody just couldn't accuse another person. There had to be two witnesses in order to establish the testimony. Two or three witnesses. And what they're saying to Jesus is, look, we, we've heard what you've had to say, but we cannot take it seriously. And the people shouldn't take it seriously either because here you are claiming to be the son of God, claiming to be the one who shall judge the quick and the dead, but the reality is you're the only one testifying to yourself. You don't have another witness. And so your testimony in a court of law would be thrown out. Now, how does Jesus answer that? Well, Jesus gives a twofold answer to that. The first answer that he gives is that this is no normal testimony. He said, God doesn't need another witness. <laughs> if we were talking about merely human matters, absolutely. Every human witness, because human witnesses are flawed, you have to have two, one to corroborate the other. But when it comes to God, that is not the case. Who does God have to appeal to? Who does God have to appeal to in order to establish his testimony? Look at verse 14. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. And this is the second part of his response. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. And your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. In other words, Jesus said, first of all, as the Son of God, I don't need to appeal to anybody. <laughs> who can God appeal to? He said, but because you require two witnesses, I want you to understand there are two. I bear witness to myself, and my Father also bears witness to me. Now you say, well, now how did the Father do that? Well, Jesus' answer to that would have been through the signs and the wonders and the things that I perform. Keep your finger there in John chapter 8 and turn back just for a moment while we refresh our memory in John chapter 3. Now this is that great section about Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. It's that great section about the new birth, being regenerate, being born again. And look at John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, there are a couple of very important things that we're told about Nicodemus there. One is that he's a Pharisee. Now, you understand that the other great Pharisee that we're familiar with is the Apostle Paul. He was a Pharisee. These guys were the experts in the law. They were trained. They were brilliant. They were conservative. They were faithful. But not only was he a Pharisee, the strictest sect in all of Judaism, but we're told that he was a ruler of the Jews. Now, what does that mean? It means that Nicodemus was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. That is the highest body of authority within Judaism in the first century. When we looked at this text, I pointed out to you that in our government today, we have a separation of powers. 
we have three branches of government. We have a judicial branch, we have a legislative branch, and we have an executive branch. The legislative branch makes the law, correct? The judicial branch interprets the law, and the executive branch enforces the law. Now, why is it that we have a separation of powers, three separate branches? Because the founding fathers recognized that if all of that power was vested in one body, there could be tyranny. And so they made sure there was this balance of power between the three parts. Well, that wasn't the way it was in first century Judaism. There was no separation of powers. The legislative, judicial, and executive powers were all vested in one body, the Sanhedrin. They had control over every aspect of an individual Jew's life, and not just the Jews living in and around Judea. They had absolute power over every Jew living anywhere in the world. They were a powerful body. This is why Nicodemus is described as a ruler of the Jews. So he's a Pharisee, strictest sect. He's a powerful man. He represents the Sanhedrin. Incidentally, it was the Sanhedrin that would ultimately condemn Jesus to death. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God were with him. I think that's very revealing. And Nicodemus, like those guards that had been sent to arrest Jesus at the festival of the booze, had never heard anyone speak like Jesus spoke. He spoke as one having authority, an authority of his own, no derived authority, Jesus wouldn't say things like, well, you've heard what the Rabbi Gamaliel says, but I say to you. That's what Jesus would say, he said. You've heard that it was written, but I say to you. That's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is all about. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you've even looked at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery. That was that kind of absolute authority that Jesus exercised, and people were drawn to that. They couldn't believe it. And there was a ring of authenticity to what he was saying, and that's what Nicodemus says. He comes under the cover of darkness because he doesn't want anybody to know that he's coming. But when he gets there, the first thing out of his mouth is not, I know. He says what? We know. I think that's a slip. I think that was a slip. When he said we, given the fact that John has just told us that he's a Pharisee, given the fact that John has just revealed to us that he's a member of the Sanhedrin, when he says we know, who does he mean? He means the religious leaders. So you go back now to John chapter 8 for a moment. When Jesus says, first of all, I don't need anybody to testify on my behalf as the Son of God, but he said, if you want somebody, you have the testimony of my Father as well as my testimony. And they knew it. Now, when you've been had, <laughs> when you've been beat at your own game, and you don't want to admit defeat, but you have no more arguments left, what do you do? Somebody said slander. Oh, it's the rector's wife that said that, so. <laughs> Maybe she knows something about that. I don't know, but at any rate. 
That's what you do. It, it results in personal invective, doesn't it? When you don't know, when you don't have anything to say, we have a lawyer in the room. Alan, you have an expression. When you, when you cannot pound the facts, what do you do? Um, I think you said pound the table, pound the table, there you go, pound the table, I, I don't have the facts, so I'm going to pound the table, I'm just going to get louder and louder, I, I'm going to resort to name calling. If you don't think that's the way it works, just turn on CNN sometime, you'll see it all the time. Every time there's a political race, that's the sort of thing that happens. When you do not have any substantial thing to say, you resort to what? Personal invective. And that's exactly what we see them doing here. They turn to personal invective. They begin to ask a series of questions of Jesus, but they're not really questions. You know, there are questions that are not real questions. They're not questions that are designed to get information. They're not really inquiries. I say they're accusations. That's really what they are. When Jesus said, my father bears witness to me, what is their response in verse 19? Where is your father? Where's your father? Now, what was going on there? Well, you have to read between the lines here. But at this point, what they're basically doing is they're calling into question Jesus' patrimony, his birth. Everybody knew, as we know, that there were some strange circumstances surrounding Jesus' arrival in this world. You remember Joseph and Mary? Getting close to Advent. You know the story about Joseph and Mary. Joseph is engaged to Mary, and I'm going to talk about this in the sermon, the, the Jewish wedding rites. They always came in three parts in the first century. And the second part was what was known as the betrothal, where you made a promise to one another. And if you broke that betrothal, or one of the parties violated that betrothal, it was punishable. Well, Joseph finds out that he's engaged to Mary. They've taken vows. But Mary is with child. Do you remember the story? And he did not, decided to divorce her quietly so as not to put her before public ridicule. That's what he intended to do. Until the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Why? Because the child that is conceived in her is the child of the Holy Spirit. You know, I wish the Gospels would have told us how Mary and Joseph tried to explain that to their families. <laughs> Don't you? I mean, that would have been a tough one. According to the Jewish marriage rite, as you're going to hear it in the sermon today, you were not permitted at this point to consummate the marriage. You took vows, but there was a third part. We'll talk about that as well in the sermon. But at this point, while you had taken vows to each other, to be faithful to each other, you were not to consummate the marriage. And here's Mary, she's expecting. Joseph assumed that she must have been with another man. He wants to divorce her. Then God, the Holy Spirit, sends this angel. And this angel says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, the child that is conceived in hers of the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph says, okay. Well, I got to go home and explain that to the community, to the friends, to the family. What are we going to say to the people in the synagogue? Oh, well, it's, it's not my child. Oh, really, Joseph. And whose child is it? It's God's child. How many of you would be willing to buy that? <laughs> so this was a serious matter. 
And there were rumors floating about at this point. And presumably, that's what the Jewish religious leaders, when they do not have an answer to Jesus' response here in John chapter 8, that's what they're referring to. Now you say, well, how do you know that? Because of verse 41, if you go on a little bit further, we're not there yet, but eventually we will be. But look at verses 40 and 41. Jesus says, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality, for we have one father, one God. <laughs> Don't tell us. We know about your birth. You're the result of fornication. See, that's the charge they were bringing against Jesus. When they didn't have any legitimate answer to what he said, what do they do? They resort to name-calling. It's really pitiful. It's really quite sad to see them sink to this level. But given the fact that they were willing to use that poor woman caught in adultery for their own means, it's pretty clear they're willing to go to any depth imaginable. So Jesus said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin for where I am going you cannot come. So the Jews responded, will he kill himself since he says where I am going you cannot come. That was the second question they asked, is he going to kill himself? Because Jesus said I'm going away and you cannot follow me. They presumed they were going where? To heaven. That's what they thought. And if he's going where they can't follow, he must be going where? To hell. <laughs> Jews believe that if a person committed suicide, it was a violation of the law, it was a sin to commit suicide. Now, it was not the unforgivable sin, but what it did mean is that a person would generally go to hell and they would go to the deepest part of hell. And so that's the question that's being asked. Will he kill himself? Will he end up in the lowest part of Hades. Now, Jesus answered that. He responds, you are from below. You think I'm going down, and you're going up. Actually, it's the other way around. I'm from up. You're from below. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Here's the third question, verse 25. Who are you? Now, I said that there are questions that are really not questions, and that is certainly the case here. They're not really interested in who Jesus is. This, this, is, this is not one of those honest questions. We're, we're struggling here. Jesus, explain this to us. No, this was a question that would be more like this. Who are you anyway? Or who do you think you are? That was the question that they asked of Jesus. Well, the Lord, as I said, had a response, and it was a shocking, stunning, terrifying response. First of all, Jesus makes it very clear, as I've said, that these are not genuine inquiries. They weren't asking questions in order to get information. Whatever information they derived, they were certainly going to use it against him. 
He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. The nature of the question, Jesus says, reveals the true nature of the questioner. They weren't interested in getting at the truth. Their questions revealed the fact that they were interested in suppressing the truth. You ever ask questions like that? Obfuscation? Distraction? Questions that are designed to confuse, not clarify? Keep your finger there in John and flip over to Romans for just a moment because it is precisely this attitude that the Apostle Paul is dealing with in the first chapter of that great epistle. Paul is describing the human condition beginning in verse 18 and this is what he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what? Suppress the truth. He said, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So that men are what? Without excuse. That's exactly what the Jewish religious leaders were doing. They were not interested in getting at the truth. They were interested in suppressing the truth. Paul says, the wrath of God is being poured out against the ungodliness of men... Because God has made himself known clearly in the things that have been made. Theologians refer to this as general revelation. And yet men, instead of acknowledging that, prefer to follow their own desires, their own ways, and so they suppress the truth. That's exactly what the Jewish religious leaders were doing. And what happens when men suppress the truth? That's the question that Jesus is getting at here in John chapter 8. What does God do when men, rather than acknowledging the truth, they'd already acknowledged that nobody could do the things that he's doing unless God were with them, and now they've turned to personal invective. If you're suppressing the truth, you refuse to believe. What does God do to people who suppress the truth? Well, Paul tells us in Romans. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up. I'm going to be honest with you. I think those are the most terrifying words ever spoken in Scripture. God gave them up. Worst words that you'll ever hear the Lord say are these. Okay, do it your own way. There comes a point where God actually says that. That's what Paul is saying. There comes a point where God actually says, okay, you want to do it your own way? Go ahead. Do it your own way. And he doesn't say that just once. You'll notice that he says it three times in this section of Romans. In verse 24, it says he gave them up to uncleanness, to debauchery. Verse 26 says he gave them up to dishonorable Passions, that is, to sexual vices. And then finally, he gave them up to a debased mind. Those of you who've been in Romans, it's a downward spiral. And what happens when you're given up to a debased mind? Well, just look 
at verse 28 of Romans 1. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to have been done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know that God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. One translation says, they not only do these things, they applaud those who practice them. They invent ways of doing evil. And is that not a picture of our culture? People inventing ways of doing evil. It's not as though the ones that we can just, you know, find naturally are enough. No, we've got to do more. We've got to invent ways of doing evil evil. And that's the problem. And Jesus' point here in John chapter 8 is that do not be deceived. God's patience will not last forever. You're going to hear this message again in the sermon today because the parable is all about that. The parable of the wise and the foolish virgins. It's all about this. It's about being ready because God is patient. God is merciful, but his patience will not last forever. Jesus says this to these men. He said, if you do not believe in me, you will die in your sins. I want you to understand something. There are two ways to die. You can die in the Lord which is what the book of Revelation refers to, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Or you can die in your sins. And if you die in your sins, Jesus said, you will be lost forever. Now, I know we live in a culture where, in the words of Johnny Mercer, we're supposed to accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, and don't mess with Mr. In-Between. This is, this is a somber note. Are we going to end Sunday school on this note? Yep. You say, well, that's frightening. It should be. Sometimes the truth is frightening. But Jesus didn't say this merely to frighten these people. He spoke these words to shock them, to wake them out of their spiritual slumber. That they might repent and that they might be saved. Jesus had as much compassion for the Pharisees as he does for any of us. But he is clear. God is gracious. God is merciful. God has provided a way, and Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I'm the only way to the Father. Whoever believes in me, what? Will not perish, but have everlasting life. But if you suppress the truth and you refuse to believe, he is clear, you will die in your sins, separated from God for all eternity. Don't let that be the case with you today. There's still hope. There's still the chance. Jesus is still the Lord, still the Savior, still the one whose property is always to have mercy. So come to him and find in him the grace, the mercy, the pardon 
Submit to the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this section of John's gospel. It is powerful, and we need to heed it. We need to hear it. Many of the Pharisees did not. We all have an inevitable appointment. None of us is getting out of here alive. We're all going to die. Grant that we might die in the Lord and not in our sins. Come, Lord Jesus, wash us. Make us whiter than snow. Put your Holy Spirit within us to change us, to transform us, to make us into the image of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.